Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, as you may have heard from some of our pre previous episodes, I just recently launched this new segment called Aspiring Intellectuals, where I interview a lot of scholars uh, about some of the more foundational concepts in their fields and what they've been doing. And today, it is my distinct honor to welcome Hunt Alcott, who is an applied microeconomist who studies uh, topics in behavioral economics, environmental economics, public economics, and industrial organization. Uh, he is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research, visiting the economics department at Harvard, uh, also a co-editor of the Journal of Public Economics uh, and a scientific director of Ideas42, uh, which is the think tank that applies insights from psychology and economics to business and policy design problems. So a very long-winded way of, of, of welcoming you, Professor Alcott. Thanks so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you. It's great fun to be here. Um, I was uh, just mentioning you before the interview started that uh, when we confirmed this interview with me, it was like back in last March before COVID hit, we were going to visit you in, in, in Boston, uh, but then it got delayed until now. And I said, I didn't realize how big of a deal you were back, uh, back in a year ago. And, and over the course of last few months, uh, when I read more econ papers, I started to realize this new subfield that you're helping create, which is behavioral public economics. It's a fascinating idea. Uh, why don't we perhaps start there, wh who you are, what you work on, what this subfield of behavioral public economics is? Per perhaps that's a good starting point. That sounds great. And you're, you're very kind. You and my mom, <laughs> I think my dad, are like the three people in the world who think I'm a very big deal. Um, I'm still trying to convince my wife and my cat, but I, I don't know if I've successfully yeah. convinced them that I'm a big deal. Uh, so behavioral public economics, um, and I'm, I'm one of um, a number of scholars who are working um, in this space, and I think it's a really exciting area. It is the combination of public economics and behavioral economics. Public economics is how governments earn revenues and spend money, and part uh, answers some questions around how governments regulate the economy. And uh, behavioral economics touches on how uh, consumers make decisions in ways that may not always follow the standard rational model uh, that economists um, typically use uh, to answer most questions. And there are a set of questions where you really need that intersection of ideas. So let me start with questions that don't require that intersection. Imagine you want to decide uh, whether to build a new bridge somewhere, or you want to decide, you know, many other regulatory questions. Um, if you taking the bridge as an example, if you uh, see people driving across a bridge and willing to pay a $6 toll to go across that bridge, it's safe to assume that they're getting at least $6 of value from that bridge. And so if you want to value the potential benefits of a new bridge, you would say, well, how much would people be willing to pay for it? Uh, how much, how does that compare to the cost of building the bridge? And uh, from there, you can ask if the benefits out outweigh the costs. And if so, you should go ahead and build a bridge. Um, there are other questions where that logic starts to break down. I think cigarette taxes is an intuitive example for many people. So, you know, for decades and decades, people have bought manufactured cigarettes in the US and around the world. And, uh, you know, cigarettes used to cost a couple dollars a pack, let's say $2 a pack. 
And if you apply the standard willingness to pay or revealed preference assumption, if somebody was willing to pay $2 for a pack of cigarettes, you would then go on and assume that people got at least $2 worth of value out of that pack of cigarettes. And then there's no reason to tax cigarettes. You just let the market create cigarettes. But of course, the whole concern is that when somebody buys a pack of cigarettes for $2, they're not getting $2 worth of value out of it because maybe they're not taking into account how they're going to get addicted and how the, uh, you know, how the, the, the cigarettes will harm their health in the future. And so maybe if I paid $2 for that pack of cigarettes, I lost $2 of value or I lost $10 of value or even more um, as measured by how this is gonna impact my health in the future. And so that is a behavioral economics assumption in the sense that it violates the standard um, uh, rational model assumptions that you would make. And you, that is exactly the reason why we're taxing cigarettes. But to, to answer the question, what is the optimal tax on cigarettes, you want to start then thinking very carefully about these issues and how much value we're actually getting out of cigarettes. And so there's a whole class of questions that are in this space where standard benefit cost analysis breaks down. Um, other questions like this include uh, other questions around sin taxes. Should we tax uh, soda or alcohol, or marijuana, other addictive drugs? Uh, should states run lotteries or lotteries a regressive stupidity tax? Should we have payday lending, et cetera, et cetera? And so behavioral public economics, I think, is an exciting uh, example of uh, this confluence of, uh, of fields that allows us to try to make scientific progress on these important policy questions. So you mentioned syntax, uh, which is a term I previously didn't hear, hear about uh, until reading your work. And you also mentioned a couple of examples from soda to cigarettes to payday lending. So perhaps we can go, go one by one. W what is syntax? This is a big term. Yeah, uh, a syntax is a tax on things that people think of as being sins. And so the most common syntaxes are uh, for tobacco, uh, and alcohol, and there's a new, you know, a new wave of taxes on uh, sugary drinks in the U.S. and around the world. And in the case of soda or payday lending, I think the, the biggest debate is that on one end, people say consumers don't know what's best for themselves, and therefore the government should step in. And the, on the other side, people say people know what's best for themselves, and if they want to do payday lending, if they want to uh, buy cigarettes you should let them do it. So, so you actually, and uh, in the field of behavioral public economics, you, you actually try to avoid normative judgment. So, so you don't step in and say, I, I know what's best for you. You are trying to figure it out through data and you, like cons you, you basically uh, take what's, what's being done as a given and then lo look at the data and then figure out people's preferences, which, which is kind of very different from the traditional way that we, we think about those problems, right? Yeah, let, let me let me expand upon this because I think it's I think it's really important. So we are in a sense trying to make normative judgments. Maybe I'm using the word differently than you, but I think typically when we talk about normative judgments, um, we mean what should the policymaker do to maximize welfare. So would a um, a higher tax on alcohol or a lower tax on alcohol 
be quote unquote better in the sense of improving social welfare? So like that's a normative question and you know, public economics, um, all, all fields of economics deal in these types of uh, normative questions as, as well as the non-normative or, or positive descriptive uh, questions. Um, and indeed a lot of behavioral public economics is trying to answer these optimal policy or normative questions. Now, there is, um, there's another part of your question though that I think speaks to the approach that we take in behavioral public economics because it's that we don't want to impose our own personal judgments or our own personal preferences on other people, even as we make these quote unquote normative assessments about what optimal policy would be. So there is an approach, I think, among some uh, scholars or some fields that basically says, I think, you know, polluting the environment is bad and we should at all costs avoid polluting the environment. Or analogously, I think eating meat is bad and at all costs we should avoid eating meat. Or I don't like soda, why would you like soda? At all costs we should reduce uh, soda use. I don't see why anybody would smoke. You know, the goal is to minimize smoking. And so I think that's one perspective. It's not the perspective that behavioral public economics takes. Instead, it says people have, you know, heterogeneous preferences. I love eating dessert. Uh, I personally like some desserts. I sometimes like meat. I used to really love drinking Fanta. I've never liked cigarettes, but I understand that, you know, they might help you calm down or other things. I don't like coffee, my wife does. We all have these different preferences uh, for different types of consumption. And I don't wanna judge, when I'm making my normative statements as a scholar, I don't wanna judge other people or sort of invalidate the possibility that they might get um, some benefits out of smoking or drinking sugary drinks or other things. And so really the key is, however, and so I think now we're identifying the tension because the motivation for some of these policies is that um, we're concerned that when you bought that pack of cigarettes for $2, you didn't actually get $2 worth of value out of it. But at the same time, we don't wanna impose our own preferences on you. And so that leaves us in a bit of a quandary. How do we actually make progress in identifying what are quote unquote, your true preferences? And uh, so maybe that's what we should talk about next. Yes, please. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about what you found in the cigarette study or soda study? Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just let me just say like philosophically what I mean by true preferences. So, and this is an area. There's a there's a, a professor at, at Stanford named Doug Bernheim who, uh, with various co uh, co-authors, um, has I think really pushed the field to think carefully about what we mean by true preferences. And so basically, the way this the way that I think at least I think about it, and some of my colleagues think about it is your true preferences are the preferences that you are the, uh, re, your true preferences are reflected in the choices that you would make for yourself if you were fully informed. 
if you are paying attention to the, all the aspects of a problem and you are making decisions uh, that consider, fully consider all the long run costs and benefits that would accrue to you. The latter's a little bit subtle um, um, and there's some disagreement in the field on how to deal with this short run, long run issue, but broadly, I think it's well-informed paying attention and paying, uh, paying attention to all the consequences and also paying full attention to future uh, consequences in particular. Um, and so what we try to do when we measure true preferences is either in a real world setting or in an experiment, try to measure what are the decisions people make when we actually give them that full information or force them to pay attention, et cetera. So I think that's the sense in which we are both allowing the possibility that there are some settings where people don't make decisions with full information or not, you know, are just, they're only thinking in the present when they make decisions. We allow that to be possible. But at the same time, we're trying to measure, uh, we're trying to make policy to suit people's true preferences that, would, that they would have for themselves as, as measured by their choices in these fully informed settings. And so in that sense, we're trying to be non-paternalistic. So in some sense, that, that, that's why you conduct experiments in which if somebody uh, initially made a decision, but then they reverse that decision uh, after being a little bit more informed, then you can infer from that switch of preference, you say, then the, the person probably was not well-informed and, and that's not their true preference. Um, yeah, I, I love how you're making this tangible. So let, let's do that with the energy. <laughs> let's do that with the energy efficiency study because I think yes. that's the, I think that's the easiest way to start to see some of this stuff. So, in 2015, um, I, I have a colleague named Dmitry Tabinsky teaches at Berkeley, and he and I published a paper in 2015 that was studying light bulbs. And you may not think very much about light bulbs, but they're actually a really good example of these behavioral public economics debates. So the markets have changed a lot in the last few years, but um, at the time when we uh, ran the experiment and wrote this paper, the two main kinds of light bulbs were incandescent light bulbs. They were the traditional uh, type and then the semi-newfangled semi compact fluorescent light bulbs or CFLs. And it's actually remarkable how different these, uh, technologies are in terms of the cost. So, and I've got the numbers right here. Um, at their rated lifetimes and energy uses, if, if I wanna get light out of a 60 watt socket for eight years, that cost me $56 for an incandescent and only $16 for a CFL. And it's because the CFL uses four times less energy and also has to be replaced much less frequently. It doesn't, it doesn't burn out as much. So actually that's a huge amount of money because you've got a lot of 60 watt sockets in your house and a lot of other watt sockets in your house as well. And if you were to just look at those numbers, you might say, wow, people should be buying a lot more CFLs. People should not be buying incandescents. They're wasting their own money. And so this argument made its way into policy because in the US and in other countries, uh, and in the US it was led by California, there were bans on, there were bans that were passed on incandescent light bulbs that have then been enforced and rescinded at various times. Um, and these were partially, at least partially about consumer protection. 
you're wasting money on your incandescent light bulbs and we're gonna force you to stop buying them. And um, indeed, this is part of the argument that you see when, the re when you read the regulatory impact documents, that the governments are explicitly saying consumers are not very good about thinking about these, um, these cost differences. And so we're gonna just force people to buy the cheaper thing. Now, another part of the argument was environmental issues. So the more energy I use, the more climate change that causes. But of course, there are other ways of dealing with that, like carbon taxes that would you know, price carbon into the price of electricity. So I think this approach of banning incandescent light bulbs is best justified by a paternalistic view that people aren't taking energy costs into account when they decide what light bulb to buy. Now, there's another argument here, right? The counter argument is, I hate CFLs. They flicker, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, the light is different, they have mercury in them. So if I break them, it's, it's a little bit scary and I gotta figure out how to clean them up. Um, so what if this is not that I'm not paying attention to the cost, it's just that I just I don't, don't like, yeah. I just don't want it. I just, I'm like, why, and why is the government <laughs> sort of getting up in my face and making yeah. me buy this product that I don't, I don't want? And, and so I think this is just like a really nice and clean example of the type of the, of the type of debates that you see, you know, also with payday lending, lending and lottery tickets and tobacco and, you know, marijuana and all this stuff. So, um, so here's the approach that we took. One approach is just to say, well, let's look at the financial costs and assume that consumers only care about financial costs. But of course, that's not the approach we wanna take because we wanna allow that people might have different preferences than I do. They might hate CFLs because uh, of the flickering or whatever else. And so what we did is we ran an experiment where we took people who were shopping for light bulbs and we randomly assigned them to two groups. For one group, we'll call that the control group, we just let them buy light bulbs. And for the treatment group, we basically hit them over the head with information about the energy costs and the replacement costs of incandescents versus CFLs. And we weren't trying to talk about environmental issues. We weren't trying to persuade people in any one direction. We were just trying, like we designed the experiment so that it felt like it was just giving people this information and then letting people make the decisions that were best for themselves, given that information. And so, uh, so you can see how this is gonna be a nice test uh, of, these, uh, of these concepts. If the treatment group and the control group are both equally likely to buy CFLs versus incandescents in the end, that says that the information we gave the treatment group didn't have much of an impact. And it suggests that when people are buying CFLs in normal settings, which are like the control group, that they're already taking these costs into account. On the other hand, if we see that the treatment group is now much more likely to buy uh, CFLs instead of the more costly incandescents, that suggests that the choices of the control group were affected by the fact that they didn't have this information that we'd given them. And then how, do, how does that play into regulation? It says that if you can't you know, send people around to inform every light bulb shopper at the moment that they're making a decision, 
that maybe uh, subsidizing CFLs, as is often done, or even banning incandescence would be a good sort of substitute for this information provision approach because it would help consumers to basically implement the choices that they would make if we were able to fully inform them and then let them decide what was best for them with full information. So that's the concept, yeah. How do you conduct those experiments? Do you recruit a couple hundred people and then run experiments on them, basically? Indeed, yeah. So for, for this paper, we actually ran two experiments. Um, one was an online shopping experiment where we found a nationally representative uh, sample of Americans via a pretty high quality internet um, source. Um, and we said, this is an experiment, but we're actually gonna send you light bulbs after the experiment. And uh, we're gonna give you the chance to, to you know, buy, basically buy these light bulbs from us. Uh, and you get to choose between incandescence and CFLs and whatever of your money you don't spend on light bulbs, we will send you the remaining payment uh, as well. And so in that sense, we made it, um, you know, what we call incentive compatible. It's real world in the sense that you're trading off money that you could receive from us versus light bulbs that you will receive from us. Um, and that allowed us to do some design things that were, you know, fairly nuanced and helpful in the study. But it has this disadvantage that you're in an online experiment and most people don't buy light bulbs in online experiments. They, especially at the time, went to a big box store and bought light bulbs. And so we did a second study where we went to a big box store um, and we had RAs actually in several big box stores on the East Coast. We had RAs, research assistants, intercept people in the light bulb aisle and the treatment group would get they, they were holding iPads and the iPads would randomly assign people to a treatment group or a control group. And if you were randomly assigned to the treatment group, the iPad would then give you this information screen and the research assistant would sort of talk the shopper through what this information was. And then we would actually uh, be able to track what they bought at the cash register in the store. And so that had this advantage of being a little more real world because it was in the store. Um, uh, and uh, but had some other trade-offs that we couldn't do all the nuances that we were able to do online. If I applied to become your RA, I would be holding iPads in, in, in stores uh, doing experiments no. as well. <laughs> no, we don't do that with our pre-docs. Our pre-docs do, uh, do very high level and very interesting work. At, at this point for the stores, we would hire someone else who would be uh, cheaper than you. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think the, the key point that I really gathered from what you explained is that you're trying to de-bias the imperfectly informed or inattentive consumers. So you're not trying to convince them to buy one product or the other. You're simply providing them with better information and see what happens. And then based on the outcome, you can derive certain policy suggestions and results from that. And so therefore you're minimizing what you would call the, the demand effects. And so, so that's kind of what, my, what I've gathered from, from that. We uh, want to know, yes, exactly. We want to know what you would do, what your choices and preferences are in a setting where you have the information, you're paying attention, and you're thinking about the long-run consequences. We don't want to persuade you to follow the path that someone else wants you to follow. Perhaps we can also talk about the payday loan, payday loan example, because payday loans, as our listeners may know, it's the short-term high-interest loan 
that is typically due on the borrower's next payday. So if someone is in a crunch of cash, they, they borrow something at a very high interest rate and then they pay it back uh, on their, their next payday. And the critics of payday lending often argue the practice is predatory. It can trap vulnerable borrowers in debt that they cannot afford. We've seen tons of documentaries on this. Uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau had, had Elizabeth Warren are big uh, advocates of, of uh, regulating this industry. But the opposite side, so sort of the more libertarian argument would say, if people actually want payday loans in, in those days, you should provide it to them at the high interest rate and therefore uh, you should provide that, that, that service. So again, this is a typical kind of uh, classic situation where both sides of the argument seems to be arguing for, for uh, in the consumer's best interest. So uh, what were your findings in, in that context? Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I love the connection you're making. This is really the same class of problems where you have a market, you have a basically a product or service that somebody can buy, somebody can buy that seems crazy to some people. Like, why would you take out a payday loan and pay such tremendous interest rates? And in practice, you're not just taking it out once, you're taking out a payday loan, you're renewing that payday loan uh, two weeks later, you're renewing it again two weeks after that. And so it's just adding up and adding up and adding up. And why didn't you get that, you know, why didn't you go to your brother? Why didn't you use your credit card if you had credit card, you know, um, availability? Why didn't you just tighten your belt a little bit that first time? Like, why are people doing this? And so I think the, the, intu the intuition is that has to be bad for people. Uh, so maybe we should ban it. And then, as you said, the opposite intuition is people are doing this. And when, and I have gone to payday loan centers and you talk to people and they know exactly what they're doing and the interest rates are posted on the walls. So they're not being misled about- They're what not being they scammed. Yeah. They're not being scammed. In fact, a lot of consumers really like payday lenders compared to the credit card company. Because think about what those business models are. The credit card business model hinges much more heavily on fees, many of which are hidden or shrouded in some sense. The payday business model is all right there in front of you. Here's a loan, <laughs> here's what it's gonna cost you, right? Yeah. But the question that I think is unanswered in this debate is, even if people understand the product, do they understand how they will use the product, right? Because it could be that payday loans basically allow us to exploit ourselves. So the, the lender is transparently giving us this high cost product. They are telling us what the, what the fees are gonna be. Um, so they're not like literally exploiting us by misleading us about what the product is. But the existence of this product may allow us to exploit ourselves because I don't fully understand that if I take out this loan today, in two weeks, I'm not gonna have a way of paying this back. So I'm signing myself up for taking this out again in two weeks and two weeks after that and two weeks after that and two weeks after that. And so something that feels minor right now is actually a big deal because before I know it, I will have paid more in interest 
than I actually got in the original principle that I'm taking out today. So I think that's the concern. And so regardless of who has the quote unquote blame for the exploitation, whether it's the payday lender or me, the consumer, the existence of the product is causing me to be exploited. And so maybe the government could make me the borrower better off by just banning me from borrowing this. And so there are, uh, I think around 20 states now that have banned payday lending in the US, effectively banned payday lending by setting really low interest rate caps that force the lenders to exit the market. Okay, so that's the, that's the, that's the question. And the answer you can see is actually, the, the data you need to answer this uh, are actually quite simple. You just wanna go out and ask people when they're borrowing, hey, do you know that ch chances are you're gonna be borrowing again? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's the essence. I mean, what we did is a little more complicated than yeah, that, yeah. but like, that's the essence of what we did. We, we went to a bunch of payday loan centers we surveyed 1,200 borrowers that came in uh, over a several month period to these, to these different centers who agreed to be in our survey. And we, basically, we just asked them like, what's the probability that you're gonna borrow again in the next eight weeks? And uh, then we compared that to their actual borrowing data. And that's our test. And if it turns out in the data that people say, oh, I've only got a 20% chance of borrowing, but they've actually got a 70% chance of borrowing. That's evidence for this self-exploitation hypothesis that I'm getting into something that I don't fully understand. On the other hand, if people say, I've got a 70% chance of borrowing and they actually have a 70% chance of borrowing, that says no, consumers are coming into this with their eyes wide open and they don't need the government to ban them from doing this because they are making a well-informed choice to engage with this product. And what did we find, you might ask? We found it was like the latter, uh, the, my latter example, where people indeed um, are very close, not fully, but very close to well-calibrated about their future behavior. So on average in our sample, they reborrow with 74% probability, 74% 74 of the people in our sample got another payday loan within the next eight weeks. And the average prediction about their future behavior was 70%. So people uh, said, I will have a 70% chance of borrowing on average. And they were almost right because the truth was 74%. So does that somewhat imply that payday loans shouldn't be outright banned across the 20 states you previously mentioned? What would be the policy recommendation coming out of such a behavioral public economics experiment? So indeed in, the, in that paper, we try to take a, a number of steps to actually carry out this type of benefit cost analysis of um, payday lending regulation. And you're right, Tiger, that what really, what this, benefit cost analysis really hinges on is whether people are, are naive. In other words, whether people correctly forecast their future behavior. Um, and so indeed the fact that people are pretty good at forecasting their future behavior basically says, you know, people are taking out, people are using this product, it costs them X dollars, they're getting X dollars worth of benefit from it. And so if you ban it, you're taking away that consumer's gain. 
Um, there are other, um, you know, reasonable people might introduce another model or another behavioral bias, but I think to me, this is fairly persuasive uh, that um, I, I have persuaded myself uh, with this paper, at least, that um, I think a ban on payday lending is not uh, welfare improving uh, in the US. I see. So I guess the broader question here would be, how have results from behavior public economic experiments gradually trickled down or trickled into US economic policymaking or consumer protection policymaking? Have you seen a, a dramatic shift of, of attitudes in uh, policy think tanks or policymakers uh, or do the debates about you know uh, personal in interest, consumer interest still very much um, still sort of the same as the old paradigm? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and I think my macro view of the policy process is that it is a um, you know a confluence of interests will determine what actually gets done, and you know part of it is the research in the long run will play a role in the debate, and so will special interests on all side of a debate, and so. Uh, but I think the hope is in the long run, our, our research will have some impact. I think, you know, within the behavioral public economic space, I think the research that I think has had the most impact on practice has been the work by, um, by Labson, Madrian, Shea, Carroll, Choi, more recently Bashirs, this set of uh, co-authors that are a team over, you know, 20 years looking at retirement savings. And I think the, the concern in that space, and this is not an, an area where I personally have, have done work, but I've been fascinated by their work. The concern in that space broadly is that people are not saving enough for their retirement. And so things that can induce us to save a little bit more for retirement would, would be good for us. And so uh, as, as I think you know, uh, Tiger, from your read of the literature, um, the companies can have a big impact on how much we save because when we start at a company, we decide how much of our salary we're going to allocate to our 401k portfolio if we're lucky enough to work at a, at a company where we have, you know, where we're full-time and have a 401k. And um, companies can either um, basically, and a key question in the space is gonna be, what does the company do if we don't make a decision? In other words, what is the default that happens for our retirement savings allocations if we don't ever get around to checking the right box to tell the company what we wanna do? And so when the company sets um, a default of a high retirement savings contribution, in practice, we end up saving a lot more, especially in our first couple of years at the company. And when the company sets a default that we don't contribute at all, then we save a lot less on average, especially at our first couple of years in the company. And so that research has had an impact um, uh, on what companies are doing for the benefit of their employees. Um, and it's also, I think, had an impact in terms of some policies as to what the US government expects uh, uh, companies to do in terms of fairness and equity across their employees. Uh, so I think that's a nice example our more recent work on payday lending and soda taxes um, and energy efficiency, I think it's harder to point to how the most recent papers in the last two years have impacted policy, but you know they're just being published. And I think there's a lot more work to do 
some of our energy efficiency work is being uh, quoted in regulatory impact analyses. And so I'm happy to see that happen. Um, perhaps this is a very naive or even too broad of a question, but uh, do you see a lot of those issues coming down to ideologies uh, or biases or narratives when it comes to policymakers actually making the decision? Because in some sense, I, I could be a policymaker like Elizabeth Warren and I read your payday lending paper and I could say, oh, it doesn't disprove my previous conception that it's still predatory in many ways. And there are inexperienced borrowers who don't know what they're getting into and therefore uh, we need to make a certain set of policies and and, uh, and and also they would say hunt what you're saying is a very idealistic circumstances in which uh, you can clearly differentiate between the inexperienced and experienced borrowers and give them the right information but we're never going to get there therefore we, we just got to do an outright ban and likewise with climate change advocates so they say sure you could have those specific more nuanced discussions about energy efficiency but because it's such an urgent problem we just got to do this sweeping bill to 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 reach some some stage. Um, is that what we're kind of observing? I guess the disconnect between uh, behavioral public economics versus the actual policy making. I think in all forms of policy making, um, many policymakers and advocates have pre-existing views. And so the way that policy is made or the, the way that research impacts policy is that the researcher finds a policymaker whose views, pre-existing views are consistent with the research finding. And then you try to disseminate the research to that policymaker as evidence to support her position. Let, let me give you an example of how this is tricky. So, um, Corporate average fuel economy standards are another type of policy that we haven't talked about yet, but I think really um, have a lot of these same issues embedded in them. So when you first, so just to be clear about what CAFE standards are, the corporate average fuel economy standard is a, a regulation that we've had since the end of the 1970s that requires automakers in the US to ensure that the, the fleets of vehicles they sell to consumers reach some minimum average fuel economy. And that's been ramped up a lot in the last 15 years or so, uh, such that automakers are being forced to sell more and more hybrid cars and fewer and fewer um, gas guzzlers. Um, so it turns out that only part of that regulation is about environmental protection. So when you go and read the regulatory impact analyses, you might have thought that the key reason why we want less fuel to be used is because um, more fuel combustion is bad for climate change. Or you, you might have made some other externality argument like, you know, we're worried about national security issues and wars in the Middle East. And I think that was actually part of the original issues in the 1970s when we had the energy crises and, you know, several different oil, oil price shocks. Um, you know, now we're a, a, a much stronger producer of oil and so that's a less serious issue. So what really matters in these cost benefit analyses is a consumer protection argument. The US government has been saying for many years that, um, U.S. consumers are not very good at weighing the benefits of higher fuel economy cars and trucks. And therefore, we, um, we make 
decisions that are not optimal for ourselves. We buy gas guzzlers because we're not thinking about how much we're gonna to have to pay for gas in the future. And that argument is, uh, was for a while implicit in the regulatory impact analyses and then was made explicit. They explicitly say, you know, we are myopic, we're not, we don't have good information, et cetera. Okay, so there were then a series of papers written, some by me and, and co-authors and some by some uh, other uh, uh, papers by uh, excellent scholars who are my friends, um, who I think, and I think the research on balance collectively shows that this consumer protection argument doesn't hold a lot of water. Um, it's at least moved my prior pretty strongly in the direction of consumers broadly on average understand fuel economy on average and are not um, making mistakes on average by buying too many gas guzzlers. So then when you take that research back to the regulatory impact analyses, it becomes very difficult to justify why the government would force automakers to sell much higher fuel economy vehicles. In other words, you, you can't support the stringency of the CAFE standards that were, um, that were required. So you may have uh, known that in the last four years in the US, we had a, a Trump administration and that administration rolled back um, CAFE standards. And this, the question is, did the senior people in the administration roll back the CAFE standards because they're interested in research and because they read the work that, you know, <laughs> economic by, scholars by you, have done, yeah. or did they roll back these regulations for other reasons that had nothing to do with the research? And so I think that that's an interesting example how I'm sort of left with mixed feelings. Um, uh, about the policymaking <laughs> scenario, because in some sense it's consistent with, you know, my read of the research and my read of the research that I've done um, with collaborators, but also I'm not totally confident that it came from a, you know, came from that same motivation. Uh, just to, I guess, uh, recap what you just said, because uh, I, I remember watching your uh, PhD mini course on uh, behavioral uh, public economics, and you cited this example because the, according to the calculations is that the private net benefits are eight times of the externality reduction benefits in the case of the stringent uh, fuel economy standards. So in other words, the cost benefit analysis wouldn't have justified the stringent standards just based on externality reductions alone. So they had to talk about consumer production protection, but if the consumer protection is over exaggerated, then the whole thing shouldn't be justified at all. And uh, I, I, I see what you're saying about the, the mixed feelings, but, but I guess, it goes back to a slightly bigger question, which is um, when we talk about environmental economics, uh, people often talk about estimating the social costs of carbon emissions, uh, estimating specific parts of it. So, uh, and, and then people often debate, oh, those estimates are inaccurate. Those are overblown. Those are narrative driven. Um, obviously, if you believe in climate change, you would overestimate the, the uh, carbon footprint a little bit more. And if you're against it, you would do it less, and, and people have those debates all the time. So uh, in behavioral public economics, I, I believe you guys actually try to not spend so much time on estimating the carbon footprint per se, but you actually ask other questions, um, if I'm understanding correctly. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I generally separate these debates into thinking about externalities, costs that I impose on other people versus internalities, costs that I'm not thinking about that I impose on myself because I'm you know, not making decisions that are fully in my best interests. And mostly these things are parallel, like the, the way that we would model an externality imposed on others is actually quite similar to the way that we would model an internality imposed on ourselves. And we might, you know, we might want to tax um, cigarettes, for example, both because I impose externalities on others through secondhand smoke and because I impose an internality on myself because I'm not thinking about the health costs. It's the same sort of broad class of things, but behavioral economics is really focused on the internality and the health economists and environmental economists are focused on quantifying those externalities. Perhaps we can uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the welfare effects of social media, which is a recent paper you wrote. You also have conducted very interesting experiments uh, and widely reported across the media about uh, welfare effects of social media, which is obviously a hot topic, especially given the 2020 election season and uh, what Twitter and Facebook have been doing with President Trump's and, and all kinds of stuff. So uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you find on, on that front? Yeah, absolutely. So let, let, me, let me back up a little bit and just say how, how we got into this. So um, I was visiting Stanford in fall 2016. And, you know, one of the things, of course, that professors do is that every few years we leave our personal university and go to someone else's university just to sort of facilitate the confluence of ideas. And this worked really well because I started talking uh, more with um, a professor at Stanford named Matthew Jensko, um, who is one of the experts in media economics. And he's thought very carefully about political polarization and related issues for the last you know, 15 years now. Um, and Matt and I got started talking and he was you know, really interested in the impacts of social media on political polarization. And you know, I had some background in running randomized field experiments. And we decided to sort of put these things together and try to run an experiment where we would measure the causal impact of Facebook by paying some people to quit Facebook and then you know, measuring the impacts that quitting Facebook had on people's lives. And so we did this in 2018 uh, before the 2018 elections. Um, we recruited a sample of Facebook users uh, we paid them uh, just over a hundred, we, we randomly selected a treatment group and we paid that treatment group just over a hundred dollars to quit Facebook uh, for the four weeks before the 2018 US midterm elections. And then right after election day, we surveyed them a second time and we said, we asked them sort of subjective well-being questions, how happy are you? political polarization questions. What do you think about the president? What do you think about Republicans and Democrats, et cetera? We asked them news knowledge questions. And broadly, we found that quitting social media makes you happier. And uh, the effect size is equivalent to uh, going uh, from an income of X dollars to X plus $30,000. So it's equivalent to another $30,000 in income uh, within our sample. We also found that quitting social media made people less aware of the news 
and less politically polarized, um, which is consistent. You get news from Facebook. That news makes you anxious, especially around the election. That anxiety reduces your happiness. And at the same time, when you're getting less news because you're off Facebook, you're becoming less politically polarized because the news you're getting through Facebook is news that's consistent with your views. And so we saw the people who quit, the liberals and conservatives, their views moved a little bit, detectably moved uh, towards the center. So that, that's what we found broadly. Um, we're actually doing this again. We have this done this again um, in partnership with a large consortium of researchers and Facebook itself uh, for the 2020 elections. Uh, our, this, this group that Matt and I are participating in with Facebook has paid thousands of people to quit Facebook for the weeks before the, 2018, the 2020 presidential elections. And so uh, I'm excited to see the results from that. Um, it's, it's really interesting for me to hear the re results because it's, it sounds very intuitive in, in some way to me, because uh, for me, it's like you, you quit social media, it obviously increases your, your well-being and Facebook, it probably isn't incentivized to, to let people do that, even though they, they know it might benefit the society more widely to, to shut down Facebook or something. Um, yeah, and I want to be, there were several things in there that you said that I, that I think are interesting and I want to be careful about. So the first is, what are Facebook's incentives here? And, and um, our experience was that Facebook was actually very interested in our 2018 results. And I heard third hand that our results were actually presented to the, the very top of Facebook's um, leadership and that, that and that they then encouraged Facebook researchers to do more research of this particular um, type. To, to and, counter research. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But. No, not necessarily <laughs> counter research, just I think to learn the truth. And, yeah. and that, that thing that I heard third hand is consistent with what I know that I've seen in the last year, which is that Facebook put a lot of money and a lot of effort behind this consortium um, for that's called the 2020 Election Research Project, put a lot of effort behind this um, to find out through randomized experiments of this same sort, what their causal effect is on the 2020 election. And um, I think something that's been, um, that I think speaks to Facebook's motivation here is that they have taken a lot of care to make sure that the, the research that our group is doing is credible research and is independent research and that you know Facebook is not putting their finger on one way or the other, how the results are gonna get written up. Um, so I've actually been encouraged by that. And I think that that speaks to um, uh, Facebook's interest in learning the truth and, and making their products um, useful to society. So I think that's, that's one issue that's worth uh, emphasizing. You know, the other thing that you said that I thought was interesting is what, whether the world would be a better place without Facebook. And that even in our, even in the, the data that we um, collected in 2018 is totally unclear. So it is true that Facebook in our data makes people more politically polarized and less happy. Um, but at the same time, when we ask people, how much would we have to pay you to stay off Facebook for four weeks? People tell us really high numbers. 
you know, we had averages, you know, between a hundred and two hundred dollars um, on average across our sample for, you know, relatively heavy Facebook users. But this is just for staying off for four weeks. It's a lot of money. And so if you were to add this up across all the Facebook users in the US, you would end up with numbers that suggest a vast contribution of Facebook to our society. Um, and so you might think, oh, well, those, those dollar numbers were inflated because people are addicted or something. But you know, even we were able to do a little back of the envelope and we have some more recent work on this and that doesn't, that doesn't get you there. I think it is true that in our data in 2018, Facebook made people less happy, but it is also true that Facebook is generating vast value for society by allowing us to communicate with our friends and family and then through their other products, you know, marketplace and other things. So, so I, I don't think this this says overall that that the world might be a better place without Facebook. I see. Um, I, I have a tendency to make uh, a controversial, normative uh, statement on the <laughs> on the show before. So, uh, no, I guess part of the reason is if you ask people to quit Facebook long term, they might have other concerns, such as oh, how do I connect with people? But if you say hypothetically as a thought experiment none of your friends would be using Facebook, you would still be able to stay in touch in some other way. I, I don't think that they would, they would still demand as high of a pre premium. So, so in the sense, I, I don't think people today are less happy or happier because of Facebook compared to people 40 years ago, 50 years ago, who didn't have this tool to connect with each other. But on a relative ba basis in terms of well-being, it was probably the, the, the same. I, I, I don't know. Um, but, but it's hard to measure well-being and, and measure welfare in, in your studies or experiments, right? I, I suppose that was my, my question, which is, what, what do you take as the value to, to say that is a measure of well-being or, or welfare? Um, it, yeah, these, these, are, these are great questions. So first on, on the network effects issues, you know, our study was paying people to quit as individuals. And so, you know, this to underscore what you said, we asked what happens to individuals when they quit Facebook and everybody else stays on Facebook. That's a different question than what happens if everybody were to be off Facebook in some other counterfactual world. So you're, you're, I, definitely, um, I definitely agree with you for, for pointing that out. Um, in terms of how we measure welfare, there's a real tension in our 2018 paper which is that you know one view of welfare is uh, how happy you say you are, um, and there's a battery of subjective well-being questions that psychologists have developed in their simplest form, asking people how happy they feel. Um, that in some cases might be a reasonable proxy for welfare, but of course another proxy for welfare is. Uh, or the, the contribution of a product to your welfare is how much you're willing to pay for it. And those two measures of welfare from Facebook point in different directions. As I said before, Facebook reduces subjective well-being on these, you know, how happy are you questions. But people are also willing uh, to pay a lot of money to stay on Facebook. And that points in another direction. And so I think that's, it's tough to resolve. We've, we've done some more recent work. Um, Matt Jensko, we being uh, Matt Jensko at Stanford and Lena Song, who's one of our excellent PhD students at NYU, 
um, the three of us and a, a, a great team of pre-docs and, and other collaborators have run an experiment where we gave people time-limiting devices on their phones. So we basically allow you to, um, we allow you to set limits for yourself on your social media apps on your phone. And the reason this is consistent with our payday lending and light bulbs and cigarette tax discussions is that I don't want to impose on you that I think that social media is bad. I want to measure when I give you this time limiting device, how much you choose to allow yourself to use social media. And so we're using the same set of con uh, concepts to try to value social media using uh, that approach. And uh, when you have me on next time, we'll have that paper written up and I'll Perfect. Say about that. Um, I know we only have a, a few minutes left. So perhaps one, one last question I would ask you on the front of media, which is who caused the media slant? I know, I know you, Professor Jensko has been asking this question for many years, but based on your discussions with him and what you saw from the last couple of years running field experiments, who caused the media, the consumer or the supplier? Yeah, and so Matt has done, Matt and Jesse um, have done some, Jesse Shapiro have done some great work on this. Uh, some of this is with uh, Mike Sinkinson, who's now at Yale. Um, I think the way that I, it's true that in, in some of this research, the, uh, you see a combination of forces, both consumer demand and uh, the preferences of the media supplier. You know, my view broadly across the media landscape, including types of media that were not included um, in, you know, the actual published work on this is that the media are giving us what we want. Uh, we have tremendous choice um, now as media consumers in a way that we did not have 100 years ago. Now I not just have my local newspaper and I don't just have the three big networks on TV, but I've got anything I can get on the web and I have anything I can get on social media. And so we get to choose. And what do you see us choosing? You see um, liberals choosing liberal content and you see conservatives choosing conservative content. And so I think broadly the way that I think about this is we're, we have choice, we're getting what we want. Um, and you know, suppliers are giving us what we want. So perhaps this would be a, a, the next large scale field experiments you, you run, because in, in some sense, this is again, what, what would be better off for, for people in, in some sense, consumers are getting what they want. But on the other case, you could say, because they're only in their echo chamber, this shouldn't, we sh you shouldn't just let them look at their own echo chambers information. So what is actually best for, for consumers? I suppose that's another behavioral public economics question in, in, in some sense. Well, when you go to grad school, <laughs> we can write that paper together. Exactly. Um, uh, Professor, do, do you have maybe three more minutes for, for two other questions or, or is, is sure. it more? Um, I, I guess the, we, we were talking about behavioral economics, public economics. So a lot of people have been saying that um, economics are often built on a set of perfect and often unrealistic assumptions and expectations like markets, perfect competition, such and so on. So the, the field of economics ought to 
include more behavioral economics and psychology kind of studies or, or basically refining a more nuanced understanding of individual preferences. So based on your study of behavioral public economics and, and what you've done so far, do you think that's a trend where we see the field of public economics and just economics at large are, are going? Well, a wise person once said that all models are wrong and some models are useful. And I, I think the answer to your question is really context specific. I think there's some contexts where the standard optimizing rational consumer model is, the, is, a, is a good representation of the world. And it's just not worth it to expand your model to include behavioral uh, concepts. There are other uh, places like in the behavioral public economics space where you need to expand your model, right? Because if, if, if the policy debate is explicitly hinges on the idea that consumers aren't acting in their own best interest, you know, the, you shouldn't have bought that cigarette because it's bad for your health. You shouldn't have taken out that payday loan because it's overall not good for you. These are explicit statements that the rational model is failing. For economists to be able to say anything about these debates, we need to engage with those allegations using data. And so I think, you know, it, it's just that um, in this space, we're specifically choosing the questions that require the addition of behavioral economics, and then we're adding those models to try to engage with the policy question. Awesome. Um, last question I would ask you, because the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I always ask our guests at the end, what would be your punchline for the interview? I mean, we've talked a, a wide range of your studies and also uh, many different questions about policy and behavioral public economics. What would be one punchline you think our listeners could, could take away from? Um, it doesn't have to be uh, catchy. <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges in this particular part of public economics is just how do we quantify consumer mistakes? If I think that people are smoking too much or taking out too many payday loans or drinking too much soda or buying too many lottery tickets, how do I see that in data? How would I measure a consumer mistake in data? And once I can make a little bit of traction on that, then I can come back and engage in a scientific way with these policy debates and hopefully help to move these policy debates uh, in a way that's guided uh, by science. It's a wonderful way to end the conversation. Uh, Professor Alcald, thank you so much. And, and how can our listeners and people at large learn more about your work and, and follow you? Well, you can Google my name, which hopefully the first thing that will come up is my <laughs> website. Uh, and then uh, you can check out uh, my website and you can see uh, the papers I've been working on and the co-authors that I work with who are excellent. And then you can explore from there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again. That was my interview with Hunt Alcott. He is an applied microeconomist who studies behavioral economics, environmental economics, all kinds of fascinating topics. And he's a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. So uh, that was our conversation. Please follow us on policypunchline.com and then visit us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, you can watch this video on YouTube. 
Uh, thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.